0: 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll also read a couple verses from Psalm 73. Also, if you would, having you juggle a lot of things here, but on page 869 in the red hymnal, the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is what we'll be considering tonight, and we'll read that answer together. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. There, under the inspiration of the Spirit, the Apostle Paul says So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Amen. And go back to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, verse 25. Verses 25 and 26. Psalm 73. There, under the inspiration of the same Spirit, the psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Question one, the shorter catechism, back of our red hymnal. Let's read the answer together. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Having just finished the Heidelberg Catechism, we're going to dive right in and see how it goes considering the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And we discussed this as a council feel comfortable uh, going with this for now and we'll we'll kind of keep it an open conversation obviously this is is not a, a catechism to which we officially subscribe as a church our uh, constitutional documents uh, are the three forms of unity the heidelberg catechism the canons of dort and the belgic confession the westminster standards uh, gave shape to the church in Churches in England and Scotland, uh, what became known as Presbyterianism. And the catechism, their catechism follows really the same structure as our beloved Heidelberg catechism does. God, the word of God, salvation in and through Christ, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. So it'll uh, allow us to, as long as we continue doing this, it'll allow us to really open up the same truths. Keep in mind that as you go through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it's a document about 100 years younger than the Heidelberg Catechism. So, Reformed Doctrine had been more developed, and that comes through in many ways in this wonderful document. We may ask the question, why? why catechisms? Why do we use them? Why do we train our children with them? Why do we memorize them? Well, we do it because knowledge... Is a necessary foundation for faith and holiness. We can't have faith uh, unless we know what we believe. There needs to be something that we know. It may be very simple, but there needs to be some truth that you know in order to be able to believe in it. So faith, there really we talk about three components to faith. There is the knowledge that uh, of whatever the gospel proclaims is true, whatever God's word says. There is the the trusting that it is true or or perhaps the right word is assenting to its truth that you acknowledge, yes, God created the world or Christ died for sinners. And then the the last aspect, component of faith is the the personal trust. Yes, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sin. I believe that I am forgiven in and through his work. So as Christians, we can't be transformed unto holy living unless certain truths take hold of our hearts and unless we know them. Certainly one of the reasons for a lackluster holiness in the Western church today is because there is a lot of ignorance. Ignorance about the Bible and ignorance about our faith. If knowledge of God and our faith is foundational to our spiritual lives then uh, tonight's catechism lesson, tonight's question and answer, is foundational to our knowledge itself. It's, a, it's, a, it's an ultimate question. Towards what, is human, uh, to, towards what are human beings oriented? What are they pointing towards? What is the, the purpose for which they were created? So it, it starts with a different question than our beloved Heidelberg Catechism. Heidelberg is wonderfully personal and pastoral. It continues to ask the question throughout the the catechism, of what benefit is this to me? Why does it matter that Christ has been raised? Why does it matter that he has ascended into heaven? And it puts it so beautifully, so it's ever relevant. It's appealing to the supremacy of Christ through the lens of personal experience. This is why it matters. So trust in Jesus. This catechism unfolds everything through the glory of God. That is the ultimate purpose for which we were made. My dad is the the most law-abiding person I've ever known. Uh, He broke fewer rules than than anyone I've ever been around. And and he is, uh, boy, we talk about a faithful man. If you can talk about a faithful human being, he's the kind of guy uh, that I think about. But he if I may just say this, he, he had one particular weakness and his weakness was cars. And uh, I'm not saying that he had tons of speeding tickets throughout his life, but he perhaps had a few. And uh, he is a big fan of American muscle cars built between 1960 and 1974. And that's, that's, that exhausts my knowledge of what he loves. That's basically all I know. Uh, but he knows a lot about cars. He's had a lot of them. He's driven a lot of them. And... You know, sometimes I would ask him, why does it seem like the idea of the speed limit is maybe the one law that he seems to have a problem with? And he would always answer the same way. He would say, well, the cars that I love weren't built to go 55 miles an hour. They weren't built to stay below 45 or 35. It would be foolish to suggest that they were. And there is something to that. Uh, the kind of power in the, the cars that he loves is striking, and the speed that the cars can travel at, is, is, it's a good point, that really, to put the vehicle to its intended use, you're going to have to go above 55 miles an hour every now and then. And so for a man who is what I would consider to be extremely law, very careful to abide by the law, He appealed to this idea of ultimate purpose. Well, why was the car made? It was made, in some sense, to to go fast. When we think about why human beings were made, it's very simple, and the answer is what we have before us tonight. We were made for the glory of God. And unless we are living for the glory of God, unless that is what we are pointing towards, we are not living at all. We are not living in a true human way. We are not living in any way that will come to have ultimate significance. Unless you start out with the glory of God as your greatest and highest aim, you will not end up living life as God intended. If I wanted to go to San Diego, and I often do, I often long for the the climate, particularly November to March, I long for the experience once again of the microclimate of North San Diego County. If I wanted to go there and I started heading east, I would not end up there, would I? I'd be going the wrong direction. I could put lots of effort into my journey. I could put lots of focus and exertion. But unless I'm heading in the right direction, I will never end up at that place. And you can live life with a lot of passion and zeal. You can have a lot of giftedness and things that would impress other people. You can work really hard. But unless the glory of God is the banner over your life, you will never end up living life the way that God has intended. So as we read tonight, that first and chief end of human beings is to glorify God. To glorify God. What does it mean to glorify God. It means to either confer glory upon something or declare something to be glorious. So with God, of course, he is the all-glorious one. He is perfect in who he is. He already has all of the glory. And you and I cannot make God more glorious than he already is. So our job is not to confer glory upon God, it's to declare him to be glorious. When we we consider the calling to glorify God, that's really what it is, to declare him to be who he is. That's what our life needs to be about, showing ourselves, showing those around us, perhaps our families or our neighbors, our church friends, all those in our community, to declare God to be glorious. To declare is more than just to speak. It doesn't mean just to express it verbally. We, re- we read tonight in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens aren't speaking verbally. They're conveying a message, but it's because of their shining light. It's because of the majesty of going somewhere where there's not so much light pollution, going into The wilderness, perhaps, and looking up into into the sky and seeing the millions and even billions of stars. Day to day, pours out speech. The psalmist says, and night to night, they tell us what they know. What is it that they know? They know that God is glorious. They know that God is powerful, and the heavenly bodies are telling that to us each and every night. They're saying, God is glorious. God is glorious. So when we think about our calling to glorify God and to declare him to be glorious, how do we do that? Thomas Boston unfolded these three ideas. The first thing he said is that we glorify God first in our hearts, in the unseen part of who we are as human beings. In our souls, we are to declare God to be glorious as we consider him to be the all-glorious one. God looks upon the human heart. Human beings can't do that. We look upon the outward appearance. God looks upon the heart and he accepts no vain worship. He accepts no vain thoughts of him. He accepts nothing that is not true and sincere. If we consider Romans chapter 12, we see there the point brought out that true life worship comes from inner renewal and transformation. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the transforming of your mind is what allows you to, accept, to present your body as a living sacrifice of thanks. There needs to be an inner renewal, an inner transformation. Psalm 51, 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So in the quietness of our hearts, we are to regard God as the highest good. In in all sincerity and genuineness, the cry of our heart is to be the cry of the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing that I desire besides you. There is nothing that dethrones God from our hearts. He is always our highest good and our highest aim. Which means we are to seek to know him What are some of the ways you can test your genuineness? Are you seeking to know him more? Do you take delight in sitting under the preaching of his word? Do you take delight in reading his word? Do you take delight in uh, meditating upon the truth of who he is? Do you seek to love him more? It's not just a question of uh, having things in your head that you can recite, but do those truths uh, descend into your heart and shape your affections towards God? Are you choosing, finally, are you choosing his way over other ways? Do you delight to keep his commandments? Psalm nineteen. In keeping them there is great reward. Do you delight in honoring God with the way that you live your life? As I come back to um, these things again and again, you'll notice that I those three ideas, those three quick things, are all about the human heart, the mind. The, the affections and the will. Are you seeking to know him? Are you seeking to love him? Are you choosing his way over other ways? So we glorify God in our hearts. Secondly, we glorify God by our lips. We glorify God by our lips. We ought to be able to look around the world... And realize that God has made us with the ability to use our mouths, to use our tongues, to declare his glory in a way that uh, other creatures of this world are not able to do. That we have been set above the animal kingdom. That we can declare the glory of God in ways that plant life cannot. And so that ought to uh, force us to ask some questions. Well, why? Why has God given us a mind to know these truths? Why has he given us a mouth to be able to declare things and express things in unique ways? Are we to use our speech for our own advantage, to use it for our own agenda, to advance our own fame, our own glory? No, God gives us the mouths he has given us to declare his greatness, to declare the glory of God. You consider, why did God give you your mind? Why did he give you your mouth? To give him glory, to glorify him. Psalm 51. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Psalm 63, verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Psalm 119, verse 171. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Hebrews thirteen fifteen. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. We have the special privilege of declaring the glory of God. Certainly in corporate worship, that is a, a central aspect of it, to sing the praises of God in the midst of his people, in the midst of his church. We ought to pray for the wisdom to know when there are other times when we can declare the goodness of God and we can declare the glory of God and how great he is. we can talk about that a little bit more later. So first, in our hearts, secondly, by our lips, and lastly, the last point that Thomas Boston brings out, we glorify God by our lives. He says this, a holy life is a life of light. It is a shining light to let a blind world see the glory of God. We know uh, when the Heidelberg Catechism is unfolding the section on man's gratitude, why, if God saves us by grace alone, why do we still need to seek obedience? One of the reasons is that our neighbors may be one to Christ through seeing our holy conduct. We live in a world of darkness. We live in a world of confusion. We live in a world of false gospels and false promises. To live seeking and striving after holiness is to live seeking to be a person of the light that brings to light the confusion, that brings to light the emptiness of all those roads other than Jesus Christ. So when we seek to glorify God by our lives, we are bringing the light of God to the world. Matthew 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Men see the light of Christ, the light of the Spirit, the light of God's good works in our lives. And what do they do? They give glory to God. First Peter unfolds that even a bit more, where he says, keep your conduct conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There Peter makes a point that perhaps in your life you will be seeking to live in service to God, striving after holiness, and perhaps some people may say, wow, you're way of living, really is striking to me. It really seems like you believe what you say you believe. It seems like you are really actually serving God, and I just want you to know that that has meant something to me over the years, and it's caused me to, to think about things. That may be one reaction we get, and praise the Lord when that kind of thing happens. There may be those who see it, and their, their reaction is opposite. Their heart is filled with bitterness and disdain. For the people of God. They will say that's, uh, that's no life that I would want to live. Who do they think they are. Telling us what is actually right. Or showing us what is actually right. The way that they live their life. Well those who speak evil. Against those who are showing the light of Christ. They will know on judgment day. The evil that they have done. And through that they will glorify God just the same god will be glorified in salvation god will be glorified in his righteous judgment so holiness gives light to a dark world it glorifies god in the sense that our lives declare the fame the glory the power of god always humbly acknowledging him as the one who does it in and through his grace and john newton he said something to the effect of, I am not what I ought to be, not what I hope to be, I'm not what I will be in another world, but indeed I am not what I used to be, and by the grace of God I am what I am. That's, the, that, that's a, a heart's cry that glorifies God. He's made me something new, and he's making me something new, and it's all him who does it. So just as holiness gives light to a dark world, so sin darkens the glory of God. This is the danger of having the name of Christ, of having this general sense that you are living for the glory of God. If people know that about you, that you're a Christian, and that you are seeking to live for the glory of God, the danger is that your sin, all of a sudden, can become the cause of the blasphemy of others. People can blaspheme God, they can misunderstand God, if they see a Christian acting in a way that is not consistent with God's word. So there are real opportunities here. Opportunities to fail and to disobey. We need to be aware of that as well. When we see a a well-ordered family uh, on this earth, and it usually will tell you something about the father, and tell you something about the parents, when we see well-ordered Christian lives, it tells other people something about God the Father. We are the family of God. And we live the way that our Father tells us. Why should we aim for the glory of God in our lives? So, Why is it something we should strive for? What's the point? Well, firstly, because God is glorious. He is glorious. So it's, it's true... In that sense, but we also need to know that God has created us for his glory. That is the, the the end of human beings. That's why we were created to glorify God. Isaiah 43. God calls Israel the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. We are grafted into that people. We inherit all of those promises, and so we know God has created us for Himself, that we might declare His praise. There have been many thinkers throughout the history of the church, uh, two in particular who are very helpful on this point, Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, who said, we are created as, as creatures who are oriented towards God from the beginning. We are pointed towards God. So where is true selfhood found? We live in an age that's obsessed with the self, defining meaning and purpose, for ourselves, finding what is meaningful to us, finding out what we think life really needs to be all about. And Augustine, so many centuries ago, said that true selfhood is found when we cease to give ourselves to created things, when we cease to find the answer in the earthly, and when we actually, in a sense, leave the self behind and go towards the one who made us for himself. It's that famous prayer of Augustine that I often say in various forms. You have made us for yourself and our hearts will not find rest until they rest in thee. That's the the God-shaped hole that many people have talked about throughout the history of the church. Augustine says in in another prayer, O God, you are ever the same. Let me know myself and thee. In other words, Augustine is saying, if I know God, then I will be able to know myself. The only way that I can know myself is if I know God first. We live in a world that says you need to know yourself, and then you work out all of the details around that. As biblical Christians, we say we need to know God first, and when we know God, we can know ourselves God has created us to be pointed towards him and pointed towards his glory and so that is why we seek it. That is why it is good to seek the glory of God. So what does it mean practically to seek the glory of God? Well, it means seeking God's glory even in the minute daily actions of our lives. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. When you eat, when you drink, when you sleep, Do it all to the glory of God. Now we should say that there are times in our lives when it's appropriate to uh, give expression to the fact that we're doing things for the glory of God without commenting on the nature of the Sabbath observance. Oftentimes we find uh, athletes who score a touchdown and they're uh, interviewed after the game and they'll say something that is very, very commendable. And very nice, and they say, I, I give the glory to God. Right? I, I'm seeking to play this game uh, as I serve my God. There are other times in our lives, you stand up in the middle of the church and we profess our faith. You say, I am seeking to live for God and for His glory. But in the course of our lives, and when we think about you know, eating for the glory of God, drinking for the glory of God, sleeping, for the glory of God. Is that the kind of thing we need to constantly give expression to? Well, no. We don't need to be constantly giving expression to that because that would never end. You can imagine a plumber. He goes into a home, a Christian plumber, and he says, I, knocks on the door, hi, I'm here to fix your sink for the glory of God. And then he goes to the sink and he Kneels down before the sink and he opens the cabinet. I'm opening the cabinet for the glory of God. I'm I'm grabbing my wrench for the glory of God. It's not the kind of thing we need to constantly give expression to. But the question we need to ask ourselves is, is the course of our lives such that we can be confident that we are doing all things for the glory of God? We do need to square with what 1 Corinthians 10 says. Something as simple as eating. Are you in your heart deciding to do that for the glory of God. So not only in our minute actions, but also in our vocational actions. Do it all for the glory of God. That thing that you have set to do most of the days of your life. You say, this is what gives my life, this is the reason I get out of bed, to do this, to go to this job. Are you doing that for the glory of God? In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is speaking about servants, slaves, and masters. And he says, as a servant who is placed under the supervision and the employment of your master, you need to do your work as a servant of God and of Christ, and you need to think about your work primarily as serving him. And so he says, servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Probably the main application of that text today is a job that we don't like, a boss who mistreats us. Because, thanks be to God, that the world economy has developed such that the kind of, of servant relationships that were back in the Bible times are not necessary anymore. The kinds of liberties that we enjoy, we praise God for it. But many of us have jobs that we don't enjoy. And uh, each and every day we may ask the question, uh, What am I doing? Uh, wh- wh- why, why am I doing this? Well, Paul says, That which you find yourself doing, Render service as to the Lord and not to man. So, in our daily or our minute actions, in our vocational actions, and then finally, in our religious actions Uh, going to church, listening to the sermon, singing to God, fellowshipping with the saints are you doing those things for the glory of God? Sadly, many people do those things for another reason. A lot of people involve themselves in church life because of the social aspect. Many people uh, go to church only for, to provide some kind of stability for the family or for your children. This is no longer the case as much anymore, but it used to be you had to go to church to look respectable in our nation, and many people did it for that reason. To impress someone, you want to impress someone and to appear religious. God sees through all of these vain Offerings. Why do you come to the house of the Lord? Is it to give glory to God? Is it to glorify him from the heart? All of this under, uh, makes sense, of course, with a proper doctrine of God. Why should you give glory to God? Because he's the first and the last. Why should you give glory to God? Because he created you and he called you to himself and we will be with him forever. If we make ourselves a chief end, we make a God of ourselves. And that is the epitome of idolatry. So we are to glorify God. And then with the time remaining tonight, we are to enjoy Him. We are to enjoy Him. A man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. In this life, we are given the opportunity to enjoy God in an imperfect way. We have a union with God through Christ. We stand in grace as forgiven and justified sinners. But we still fall into sin. We still have to die. But even still, we are united to Christ in body and soul. Not only do we have union with God, but we have communion with God. We are able to enjoy the graces that he gives to us. Joy in the Lord. Peace of conscience, growth in grace, the peace which passes all understanding. These are the kinds of benefits that God bestows upon us while we commune with him in this world. It's imperfect, but we're always striving towards the perfect union and communion that we will enjoy with God in the next life. 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is we'll be like we'll see him and we'll be like him perfect union perfect communion revelation 23 behold i heard a loud voice saying the dwelling place of god is with man he will dwell with them and they will be his people and god himself will be with them as their god god will be with us uh, the perfect communion restored that was there in Eden. Psalm 16, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. When we are united to our God in eternity, what we know will be a fullness of joy, It will be a perfect joy. It is beyond anything that we can imagine. Matthew 25, Jesus telling a parable of the last day. He says, the master says to the servant who served him well, well done. Good and faithful servant, you've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. We are to seek and strive after that day. But how do we seek the enjoyment of God? We seek the enjoyment of God as we seek God's glory. We seek his glory as we seek his glory in our lives. That is seeking, his, uh, seeking the joy that he gives to us. Seeking God's glory first is how we enjoy Him, because the way of duty is the way of enjoying God. We are to strive after holiness on earth, and that is the way to our felicity, our happiness in heaven. The more you serve God in faith and in union with Christ, the greater your immediate enjoyment of Him will be upon entering eternity. I think C.S. Lewis illustrates this so wonderfully when he has this idea of further up and further in. Those who suffer well for the glory of God, those who serve God in in the sincerity of their hearts and know him and commune with with him in deep holiness, as they're ushered up into eternity, their enjoyment of the triune God is, is wonderfully blessed. And perhaps those who did not grow in grace enough Uh, Their immediate enjoyment is not quite to that level, but both of them have a further up and further in experience that we will always be growing deeper into joy, deeper into union and communion. But in order to know that, we see the importance of communing with God here and seeking his glory. So just a couple of thoughts as we close then. We are to then take note... How much sin perverts our lives and turns us away from our chief end. That's what sin does. It turns you in a different direction. We are to be pointed towards, God, towards God's glory. Sin points us towards something else. This should cause us to hate sin all the more. It should cause us to reflect upon the fact that we seek our glory far too often. Our own glory rather than the glory of God. It should cause us to reflect upon the great opportunity we have as the crown of God's creation, man and woman, the profound opportunity we have to serve and God and to declare his glory. Thomas Boston says, How sad it is that man should forget their dignity, and become slaves to those creatures made to serve them. Right When we serve created things. You have that picture of, of, uh, of a people falling down before an idol of wood or stone. Israel worships the golden calf in the wilderness. It, it turns the whole created order on its head. Right, God created us. He created animals to be there to serve us. We turn it on its head when we engage in idolatry. And then finally, we ought to test doctrine by how much they glorify God. Does our doctrine give glory to God? Thankfully, we think of the doctrines of grace, for instance, in our uh, reformed faith. That gives all of the glory to God in salvation. He chooses, he appoints, he calls, he renews, he purifies, he sanctifies, he glorifies. It's all him from beginning to end. It's all to the glory of God. So one pastor puts it this way, let this then be your main and chief work to glorify God and to seek to enjoy him. And hence see the absolute need of Christ and faith in him. For there is no glorifying of the father without the son and no enjoying of God, but through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, fit us for this task of your glory, that we would declare your glory in our hearts, with our lips, and with our lives. We praise you and we thank you. And we pray for your grace to do just that this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.